All right. Basically, that was just read so that you won't fall asleep in the sermon today. <laughs> our second reading will be now. No, that is our reading. Uh, it's good fun, isn't it? The Book of Judges. What's that? Good fun. We've gone from poo jokes last week. Gee, I enjoyed that, by the way, too. And uh, now we're at uh, tent peg land, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I'm going to start with a quiz. I need, uh, need full uh, uh, attention with this one because the winner of the quiz, I'm going to throw these out to you, so um, I'm not necessarily that accurate. Uh, let's, uh, let's give it a crack. I want you to name for me, please, one at a time, one person at a time, uh, the six original Avengers... Just give me one. Caitlin. That'll do. That'll get you off the mark. Well done. Life. That'll get you off the mark. Two from two. That's, come on. We've got to work on those skills. Ian. Who? Listen, we'll take this to a court of arbitration later. I don't have that on my list. Captain America. Black Widow. Very good. That was the hardest one, I think. Oh, well done. Told you I don't have a good arm. We've got two to go. Who? Thor. Yes, Thor. Get there. Oh, that would have been good too. We have one to go. Can you go twice? Yes, you can. Is it Hawkeye? It is Hawkeye. Well done. Oh, oh it's two terrible, terrible throws. That's the, the original six Avengers. Here they are on the screen. Iron Man, Captain America, Thor... The Hulk, Black Widow and Hawkeye. Now, I don't know if you're a particular fan of these movies. There's now 8,375,000 Avengers and spin-offs for every single one of them. And for some people, apparently Avengers is a little too close to reality. Um, I, uh, I, I looked for who the original six Avengers were online uh, this week and uh, I immediately came across this quote. Somebody asked online, is the Avengers based on a true story? I've been told by friends that certain elements of the Avengers actually happened, but I'm not sure if my friends are serious or not. (laughs) To which just part of the reply said, what part of the Avengers seems real to you? The guy with the flying metal suit? The guy who went into a cryogenic sleep in 1945? Or the guy who turns into a green monster whenever he gets angry? Um, If you think they're real, good luck to you, but uh, they're not real. But they're fun, aren't they? Fun stories of superheroes. I actually really enjoy them. They, they switch off, they watch, they enjoy, and, uh, and I really enjoy watching those movies. You can judge me if you wish. Now, speaking of judges, the judges that we read about in this book of the Bible are historical. They're real, but in many ways they resemble superheroes, heroes of the faith, as we'll see a little later on today. Today, just like these original six Avengers, we have three heroes combining to bring about the victory of God amongst his people. We're going to have a look together this morning at chapter 4 of the book of Judges and chapter 5. And normally the attention, and rightly so, is on Deborah. Uh, But we'll see this morning that perhaps the attention ought not to be on Deborah or her other two Avenger superheroes, but really on God who saves his people with compassion and love and generosity. But we'll get to that in a moment. Question time will be after the sermon this morning as well. Uh, Slido.com, the hashtag is HBSP. You can jump onto that and ask a question. If any of this doesn't make sense, ask a question a little later on. Let me pray and we'll dive into God's word together. 
Heavenly Father, please be with us as we look at your word this morning. We always need your help and uh, we ask, please, that by your spirit you would teach us and equip us and encourage us and change us and shape us so that we might see what you're doing in this passage that at first glance seems unusual to us. Please work that we might see your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, second quiz. It's the last one, so make it count. Uh, Six Avengers, but there's also six steps in the cycle of the book of Judges. Now, do you know the cycle of the book of Judges as well as you know the Avengers? Okay, all right, well, let's see how we go. How does the cycle of the book of Judges start? Oh, Rod, I'm going to go up the back here. That was right over the bales, but the keeper didn't take the catch. Well done. Excellent work. Good. The people sin. What comes after the people sin? God is angered. Very good. You'll be listening by the end of the sermon too, because you'll be going like this. That's how that'll work. All right. Good. Next. The people sin. Yes. Sent into the hands of their enemies. Well done. Well done. What comes next? They cry out to God. Well done, Mandy. Two to go. What happens after they cry out to God? Oh, no. Yes. God raises up a judge. Very good. Seem like you're reading from notes there, but okay. Uh, final step. Beck, there is a time of peace. Get there. Oh, there was always a danger. I'm sorry, Ruth. Oh. These are yours, Ruth, or you can have them later. And I'm not throwing them to you. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. All right, these are the six steps in the cycle of the book of Judges. And here in chapters 4 and 5, we have once again the cycle being seen more clearly. Chapter 4 and 5 go together. We won't read chapter 5 in detail this morning, but chapter 4 tells us the narrative story of what we're about to see of God's salvation of his people. And chapter 5 is the song that uh, Barak uh, and Deborah put together uh, that describes exactly uh, what has gone on in chapter 4. So being that we are following the cycle, let's begin at chapter 4 and verse 1 and we see that things go bad for the people of Israel and there is the despair of sin once more. Chapter 4 verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in that place. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 10 years. So here we meet the main characters on the, uh, on the offenders' side. We've got Jabin, who is the king, who slips into the background for the rest of this particular narrative. And it's his commander, Sisera, that really takes the front and centre of the stage. He and his 900 chariots had oppressed the people of God for 20 years. Now just consider that for a moment. That's a long time. No matter what age we are here this morning, 20 years ago was a long time. Think of what you were doing 20 years ago and then think of what 20 years worth of oppression might look like. Don't think about that, Lathe, you weren't born. But think about, 
think about what it would be like for all of those years to be full of oppression. Now you say, maybe it couldn't be quite that bad. Well, in the song that Deborah and Barak sing in chapter 5, we find out a little bit more in a bit more flowery detail exactly what that might have been like. Look at verse 6 of chapter 5. Verse 6 of chapter 5. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. The travellers kept to the byways. The villages ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. You can picture the scene. It's an apocalyptic sort of scene in the nation of Israel. Everything's quiet. No one's around. This is the type of oppression that's there. And what's more, in that sort of environment, things go really bad. Chapter 5, verse 8. When new gods were chosen, when there was war in, then there was war in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? This is another way of saying there was crime right throughout. Crime everywhere. This is what happens when God's people abandon God, when people abandon him. Here is a picture, just a small picture of what life is like when people abandon God. Consider for a moment God's kindness to us as a nation, the nation of Australia. It might be generous to suggest that 3, 4 or 5% of Australian people believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The other 95% do not. And yet, it is only by God's gracious hand that he restrains the sinfulness of our nation that it does not end up like this picture for the people of Israel. For many, they would have us believe that the world would be better without God, without his rules and regulations, without his declaration of sin, without his restriction on our lives, without him being the fun police. And yet, what this passage shows us is that left to our own human devices, a world without God and without the restraint of sin is a world of chaos and disorder and despair. Do not buy that lie of our world that says that a world without God is a better world. These verses and the situation in Israel show us clearly the despair of sin. Well, as is the cycle in the book of Judges, the people of God cry out to God. Perhaps less of a cry of repentance and more of a a cry of why are you doing this, God? And God raises up leaders again for his people. Verse 4 introduces us to Deborah. Deborah, we're told, is a prophetess. In other words, she speaks for the people of God. And there she is in verse 5, sitting under a tree, offering judgments for the people of God. Now she is judging, but she's judging in a different way to Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar, as we saw last week, who were military leaders who overtook the, the nations around them. And Deborah knows in herself that this is not the type of Uh, This is not the type of judge that she is. We're told that she calls in this other fellow, Barak, and she reminds him of what he seems to already know somehow. Verse 6 
of chapter 4. Look at it there again. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 men from the people of Naphtali and for the peop- from the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general uh, of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. How does he know that he's already got this assignment? We don't know. But Barak has been told by God, this is your assignment. You are to go out and to draw out the king, uh, draw out the commander and to take on his men. But Barak, he's not so keen. Look at verse 8. He needs a little insurance from Deborah. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I won't go. You come and I'll be all right. You need to come with me. He needs a little insurance policy package to go with so that he feels comfortable to walk in to the battle. Well, how does Deborah respond? Verse 9 tells us that Deborah says, all right, I'll go. But look at verse 9. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, this sounds really weird in 2022, doesn't it? Because really, we live in a world, and especially in our nation, of radical equality between men and women in every way. So much so, there almost isn't a thing of men and women anymore, it's just people. Our radical equality has eroded any sort of difference that we might have between men and women. And yet, though we live in this radically, uh, radical equality world, there are still generalisations that can be made about men and women. For example, by and large, men conduct in the world around us heavy physical jobs and women don't. Now, oftentimes, we don't necessarily talk about these issues. We want equality across the board for men and women in all jobs. But in many countries of the world, less than 2% of the workforce of bricklayers are women. That's true in the United States. That's true in the United Kingdom. That's true here in Australia. All the statistics say that less than 2% of all bricklayers women. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, because there is a difference between us, isn't there? It makes sense that those jobs that require that physical strength are, by and large, as a generalisation, more done by men than by women. And there's all sorts of other generalisations we could make in that regard as well. We're different. Men and women are different, and that's wonderful, and that's okay, and we're not exactly the same. And so when we come to the Old Testament, we find that it's incredibly unusual, in fact, look down upon, that there might be any women fighting in the armies of God's people or really in any of the other nations as well. It's not less than 2%, it's 0%. And that's okay. Because we're different. The strong physical heavy work by and large is done by men today and back then was even more so the case. So when we're told that the victory will be given into the hand of a woman, we're we're wondering how this might be. There are no women who will fight in the army. There are no women who will fight to bring about 
the victory for God and his people. And so this will be an unusual salvation. Deborah says to Barak, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman and we are again brought face to face with God's unusual method of salvation. See, you and I, if we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we belong to a group of people that believe in an unusual salvation. We believe that salvation comes to us by a cross, by a bloody cross, by a cross on which a man who was largely unknown, came from an unknown place as we saw last week, would come and die on a cross to bring victory over sin and death and the evil one. And here we see just again how God operates. He operates in an unusual way, bringing salvation, as we'll see in a moment, through the hand of a woman, but perhaps not the one we expect. Before we move to the next part of the passage, we also need to stop and talk about Barak and his faith at this point. It's strange, isn't it? I don't know if you find it strange. I find it strange that Barak somehow knew personally that this was his job from God. But rather than listen to God, he needed an extra step of collateral and insurance before he would put his trust in God. But then I stop and think to myself, I think I do that too. Are you like Barak? Are you like me? Do you sometimes say in your heart towards God, God, I know what you want for my life, but I just won't go that far. I know what you want for my life, but I won't do that. I I just want to keep part of life for myself because when you say, God, seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, I'm not convinced, God, that all these things will be added unto you, like he says. Or when the Bible tells us to take up our cross and follow Jesus, we say to God, that can't quite be right. Surely you can't give me a a full, fulfilling life if you ask me to take up my cross and follow Jesus. Oftentimes we, we want to take God at his word. Oftentimes, I want to take God at his word, but, but we just want an extra word. We want a liver shiver. We want a, a, a piece of encouragement that's going to push us forward. Don't give us the hard stuff. Give us the good stuff. And we're asking God for the wrong, the wrong piece of information. We need to take God at his word. Barak wasn't able to do that. He needed the extra collateral, and so the glory wouldn't go to him. Well, then midway through this fantastically entertaining story, we get a detail that you think nobody's interested in. Look at verse 11. On his way to the, to the fight, we're told about this in verse 11. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. I don't know if you're a big picture person or you're a person of the details... Maybe you're both. God is certainly a God of both. But in verse 11 here, it seems like unnecessary detail, doesn't it? I mean, who really cares when you interrupt an excellent story with the story of someone who moved house that you haven't even met yet? It's a pointless detail. Why is this item of trivia here? 
We'll see in a moment that this item of trivia comes into the focus in the story in a clear and important way. In fact, God has moved this person. God has moved this man and his family that he might be included in his plan for salvation for his people. I wonder, what are the trivial details in your life? What are the trivial details in your life? You know what's not trivial? Is that God has placed you and me in this time, in this space, in this postcode, in this era of God's history. And we know that, not because I say so, but because God's word tells us. Look in the book of Acts chapter 17, what it says here on the screen. God made from one nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us. See, the the details of your life, that, that house you bought next to those people that you live next to, in the area you're in, in the era you're in, is not trivial to God. God has placed all of the details of your life, as trivial as they may seem together, for one purpose that you might know him and, frankly, that people around you might know him. This is the big purpose of God's world and the details that seem so trivial to us that wind us up in the places that we wind up in are not trivial to God. God is a God of the big picture, the very, very big picture, and that includes all of the details of your life and those in this passage. Well, we rejoin the story in verses 12 to 16, and we see the fight that takes place. As planned, Sisera comes out to fight with his 900 chariots. Now, we're supposed to understand that the 900 chariots is a huge amount. These 900 chariots had been enough to, uh, to, to oppress the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years, we're told back in verse 3. And though the uh, Barak and his army have 10,000 men, we are still to see them as a very a small amount of, of uh, soldiers to fight against Sisera and his army. And yet, shortly and simply, we're told that victory is won. Look at verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this day the Lord, uh, in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand, does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him and the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot and Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Do you notice the focus here? The focus here in verse 14 is who wins the victory. It's not Barak, it's not Deborah, it's the Lord. Deborah says to Barak, the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord goes out before you. It's very clear who wins the battle here. And it's very clear in the New Testament and in our own lives who wins the battle over sin and death and the evil one. Who wins the battle over sin and death and the evil one? It's not us, but God. God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that without God intervening in our lives, we'd be still in our sin. 
We're told that without God reaching down and taking us to be his, we would still be facing an eternity away from God. But God has reached down into this world to grab you and to grab me and to say, come, I am, I am going to go before you and show you the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give you the faith to trust in him. Look at what Ephesians chapter 2 says. We know this passage really well. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We can't boast in our salvation. God gives us the victory over sin and death and the evil one through Jesus Christ who goes before us defeating our enemies. And so we no longer have an occasion to boast before God. It's not us that's done it. It's not our cleverness that's chosen God, but God who has chosen to show his love to us. And so that means we can have great confidence because if it depends on me, I've got nothing. But if it depends on God, he's strong and mighty and will deliver the victory that he promises. This is God's victory in Judges chapter 4 and it's God's victory in our own lives. Well, then we come to the final section, the bit that literally takes your breath away. And you say, she did what? (laughs) She did what? Everyone except Sisera was defeated. Sisera, the commander, gets away. And we're not quite sure how fast, uh, how far away he ran, but you'd imagine it was a long uh, and adrenaline-filled run away from the armies of God's people. He finally comes to an ally, or at least someone he thinks is an ally. Who is the ally? Well, it's our removalist friend that we'd seen in verse 11 just earlier on. This man, Heber the Kenite, who had moved home, he had placed his tents in this particular area and his wife, Jael, comes out to meet Sisera, the commander. And she's very generous, isn't she? She's very generous. Come inside, come inside. I can see you've been on the run all day. He asks for a glass of water and and she goes a step further. "Come, Come and have a glass of milk instead. We all know the milk makes you nice and drowsy, doesn't it? Especially before bed, she gives him a little blankie as well to put over his legs. He goes to sleep. Imagine the deep sleep after an adrenaline-filled day of running away from the armies and fearing for your life. And then we read, verse 21, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground when he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And just in case you weren't sure, we're told, so he died. (laughs) So he died. Surprisingly to us, Jael was the one to bring the victory and bring peace over God's people for 40 years. She was the woman who would be the one to take the glory and take the victory. But for us in 2022, what we're struck with most of all is the violence of a passage like this. How could it be this way? And especially how could it be in God's book? And more than that, how could it be celebrated? Come over with me to the song that is sung, chapter 5, verse 26. Remember, this is a song. Deborah and Barak sing this song about Jael. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. 
Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Now, I don't know what genre of music you put to that. <laughs> but I'm going to guess it's closer to mine than yours. <laughs> there you go, it's biblical. But they've celebrated this, haven't they? Why are they celebrating such a thing as this? This is what's so strange to us. Well, a couple of things to consider. First of all, we need to understand that though we are not personally involved in this sort of violence, we do know that the Game of Thrones spin-off is coming this week. People are dead keen for that thing, aren't they? What's going to be in it? Before we cast the first stone, we must recognise what we enjoy in our own life. Secondly, we need to realise that Sisera is not just a, a, an innocent guy. He's an evil commander. Remember when Osama bin Laden was found down a hole in Pakistan? Nobody really cared how he died. Can we just put it that way? They were just happy that he died. In fact, we cheered it. This guy, Sisera, is not innocent. Look at chapter 5 again in verse 30. Speaking of what uh, these men had done in oppressing God's people for 20 years, this is how it's described. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered and so it goes on. Here's Here's the theme. These soldiers had been taking women to rape them. Perhaps for as much as 20 years. This is not an innocent man. And so we shouldn't stand back and say, what is going on here? We should recognise this is justice for a man that is horrible. A man that had oppressed God's people for 20 years. Well, two things as we finish in the final wash-up. Two things that bring to mind what this passage says to us in 2022. First of all, because of verse 8, many people want to say that this is a passage about men and women. This is a passage highlighting how women can have wonderful leadership examples, and that's true. It's also an example of how men can abdicate their responsibility as Barak has done as well. And that's possibly also true. But I want to remind you that as we read this passage, we're less to see, uh, we are supposed to see, not the men and women issue that is here. That's our modern issue. Instead, we're to see how good God is. God raises up all three of these people, two women and one man, to bring about the victory that he himself, that he himself has brought forward. Secondly, we need to recognise how the rest of the Bible sees this particular passage. Both Deborah and Jael are never mentioned again in the rest of the Bible, strikingly. Barak, however, is mentioned in the rest of the Bible, twice. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, that's Gideon, as we'll see next week, and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety and we see the same list again in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32 what more shall I say they're in the same order again as well interestingly Uh, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon Barak Samson Jephthah of David of Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice obtained promises stopped the mouths of lions quenched the power uh, of fire escaped the edge of the sword were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war 
put foreign armies to flight. This passage in Hebrews 11 is in the hall of faith. And who is in the hall of faith? Barak is in the hall of faith. Why is he highlighted? Even out of the three, he's the least likely. JL would be more likely. Deborah would be more likely. But it's Barak that's highlighted. Why is this? Well, he is highlighted, I think, because of his faith. You might say, well, his faith doesn't look so great in this passage. He needed insurance and collateral. He needed Deborah to go along with him to make him feel happy about what he was about to do. And that's why the victory was given to a woman. But we need to see that though this was the case, he still stepped out into the battlefield, verses 12 to 16 tell us. He still stepped forward into the fight, though his faith was feeble and fraught. And perhaps when we see his faith as feeble and fraught, we get closer to what it looks like for us. Our faith is feeble and fraught. My faith is like that. Your faith is probably like that. And the good news for us is that Barak finds himself in the hall of faith. So if you feel at times that your faith is not strong enough, that's okay. Now, we're not to settle for that. But we need to understand that our faith is not judged on its strength, but on who it's in. And so if you feel that at at any time in life, or particularly at the moment, that your faith is feeble and fraught and hanging by a thread, understand this, so is Barak. And yet he is in the hall of faith. This is an encouragement to us. Sometimes we feel like we're not good enough for God. My faith is not strong enough. I'm not doing enough. And this passage reminds us once again that feeble, faltering faith is what God uses to glorify his own name and that's good for him and it's good for us as well or you might have a question or two i've got a couple of minutes to ask and answer or to answer a couple of questions so slido.com hashtag hbsp uh, jump in and we'll uh, make a, a start on that in a couple of minutes time Please keep asking a question if you've got one and uh, they'll appear uh, on Slido as we go. But uh, there is uh, one there at the moment that says this. I'm not sure 
that Deborah in chapter 4 verses 6 and 7 is referring to something Barak already knew? Is she merely emphasising the certainty of what God commanded through her? Um, yeah, that could be the case. Either way, though, she knows to call for Barak. So there's some sort of understanding that he is a judge in the land as well. There's some sort of understanding that, oh, well, I know to call upon, I know to call upon him. Uh, and so, uh, uh, yep, it could have happened that way. I think, though, that, uh, that he already did know in advance, uh, but it's not a big deal in the passage. Either way, he's told by God to go uh, and uh, he says, I'll only go if... Uh, and that's the big thing in, in our own lives, isn't it? It's the challenge to hear God's promises and say, I'll only go or I'll only do what you say if uh, if it, it feels good, I get the encouragement I need, whatever else it is, um, where we've just got to take God at his word. That's the challenging part, isn't it? It's hard work for, for all of us. Um, if you've got any other questions, uh, let me know at morning time. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you have granted us uh, in Jesus uh, an unusual, unlikely salvation at the cross. We thank you so much that uh, you have given the victory in him, that it does not depend upon us. We need to only trust you, to have faith in you. And we thank you that when we do, it's not the strength of that faith that you judge, but who our faith is in, in the Lord Jesus who died for us and rose again. And we pray, please, that you would help us to go from here encouraged, that you are the one who, do, who uh, gives the victory to his people, even... Uh, when uh, they are not necessarily looking for it. Thank you for drawing us to this place this morning so that we might uh, hear your word. Uh, And we ask, please, that you'd help us strengthen by what we've heard to go out into this world ready uh, uh, to to follow you uh, and to, uh, to put into practice the things that we've heard this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand. We're going to sing.